we have finished the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments up until trumpet number six, but we have an interlude between trumpet six and seven. And this is common after the, the sixth of any of these judgments, we get an interlude. Usually that's because the judgment has reached such a critical mass that we need some sort of encouragement or light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so that's what we are about to look at. But this will also help to calibrate where we are in the sequence of events. Uh, the interlude that we're looking at actually spans from the beginning of chapter 10 up until nearly the end of chapter 11. So uh, we're going to look at the first half of this interlude tonight and then finish with chapter 11 next week. But we're going to start with... Uh, John's vision of the mighty angel in the first three verses of chapter 10. So verse one reads, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So this comes in the midst of seven different angels blowing their trumpets. So the use of another angel is that same Greek word, alon, which we saw earlier, which means another of the same kind. So what this is telling us is he is not part of this chain of seven different angels, but he is similar to these angels. So he's not the seventh angel, but he's not unlike these angels. So who is he? Probably one of the most common views is that he is Jesus. Uh, the biggest problem with this interpretation is that similarities don't make the same identity. Uh, he is presented to us with similar imagery that we're given of Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. But there are enough distinctions between this angel and Jesus that we can't draw a connection there. Uh, so, for example, Jesus does not come down out of heaven until chapter 19. If he came down at this point, uh, it would make relatively no sense that the evil that is about to happen on the side of the Antichrist in the second half of the tribulation, if Jesus were coming down to conquer, he would be doing a very poor job of conquering at that point. Uh, so this... This has a lot of theological issues if we try to make this Jesus coming down to earth at this point, tribulation. Also, this angel later in the chapter is going to swear by God as if this, as if God is a higher authority than himself. If this were Jesus, he would swear by himself or swear by God uh, being himself. Uh, and again, that use of Alon, which we have two different others in Greek. One is alon and the other is heteros. Uh, heteros means another of a different kind. Uh, heteros is what gives us the English word heterosexual, meaning another of another kind, not another of the same kind. Uh, and then alon is, is another, but the same variety. So this, this is the verse that most people will go to in order to try to prove that this is Jesus Christ. It's from Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. And it says, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, 
and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So you can see there are some small similarities, but nothing that really stands out. Uh, the clearest one here would probably be the, the, fur, uh, the feet burnished bronze, uh, being similar to the angel's feet like pillars of fire. Uh, but other than that, there's not really that many similarities, even in the verses that are used to try to prove that this is Jesus Christ. Uh, and the, uh, the difficulty of this being being called an angel, they try to uh, cover over by saying Jesus Christ has been the angel of the Lord in the past, so why not this present vision? And one thing that we can recognize throughout scripture is that, yes, Jesus Christ appeared on the earth prior to um, his incarnation as the angel of the Lord, but not since his incarnation. Um, so we see this, for example, in Genesis 16, when the angel of the Lord arrives to Hagar, and it says, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And we also see this same Lord of heaven calling out from heaven. It says, God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. So they try to correlate this angel who has been uh, very well identified as Jesus Christ with this mighty angel in Revelation. But again, similarity does not uh, make identity. We could call that an illegitimate totality transfer where they try to bring all of one description over into another description that doesn't quite fit. Uh, and again, it, it brings up some theological difficulties if we try to jam that interpretation in here. So I, it's pretty easy to say that that is not Jesus Christ. Normally, it'll come with some sort of a theological reason of why they want that to be Jesus Christ. For example, with mid-trib rapture, a lot will want to say that Jesus Christ comes at the middle of the tribulation and then again at the end. Uh, but this is not the case here in Revelation. The other common interpretations aren't necessarily incorrect interpretations, but uh, trying to claim more than they're actually able to extrapolate from the text or to, uh, to glean from the text. So they'll say that this is either Michael or Gabriel. Uh, it's simple speculation based on the fact that this is a mighty angel in contrast to other angels which are simply called angels. Uh, there is a difficulty here with calling it Michael, however it could be Gabriel, but even to claim that goes beyond the text and then you could lose credibility uh, in your exegesis of the scripture. So I'm going to hang on to this being just an, indis or a, an unnamed angel it could be Gabriel, it could not be Gabriel, but it most likely is not Michael, because Michael is, um, is identified in chapter 12, so it would be odd that John did not identify him here in chapter 10, but then does identify him by name in chapter 12. Uh, but there's really only one reason why people claim that this might be Gabriel, and that's because Gabriel is associated with revelation of the last days in the book of Daniel. And Daniel and Revelation share a lot of similarities. Uh, so in Daniel 8, 16 to 17, uh, 
Gabriel does give a very similar message to what's about to arrive here in chapter 10. He says, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and then he and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So simply because Gabriel gives revelation of, uh, of the end time, and he is named as doing so, people will try to attach him to this name or to this angel. But again, he's not named. And uh, where scripture is silent, we try to be silent as well. So we're going to go with this unspecified angelic being, but it is a mighty or a strong angel. So not just any angelic being, but similar to the angelic being in chapter 5 or in chapter 20. And we're going to look at those verses in a second. Um, but we can, with relative certainty, say that this is not Jesus Christ and this is not Michael the archangel. Uh, all right. So this strong angel in heaven from chapter 5, he's probably along the same ranks as this angel. Um, so in chapter 5, we read, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So again, notice this angel is announcing Jesus Christ, so can't be identified as Jesus Christ. Uh, this angel is described to us in the same way, so again, it's likely not Jesus Christ. Uh, the strong angel which throws a stone later on is, uh, is a servant of Jesus Christ and not in heaven. It says, then a strong angel took up a stone like a great stone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And then finally, Revelation chapter 20, it, an angel who we can assume is strong, but who's not described in the text as strong, binds Satan for a thousand years. So the text says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So these angels are all probably of a similar order or a similar type, uh, where they are the servants of God uh, doing his bidding. And part of that bidding as well, we see in the book of Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in Dan or in uh, in Zechariah that these angels, which are mighty and strong angels, are also used to reveal prophetic visions to us, and that's what we're going to encounter here in chapter ten. That this strong angel has come to give Daniel or to give John a recommission as a prophet and uh, further. Uh, visions pertaining to the last half of, of the tribulation. This um, has been given to us as well. One description of him is that uh, he is uh, he has the rainbow around him. This rainbow naturally brings our minds back to Genesis 9 uh, in the immediate aftermath of the flood. In Genesis 9, uh, this bow in the clouds is put there God is eternal promise to mankind. So we read, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between you and every living creature that is with you. 
for all six generations into earth, it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So this rainbow is the sign of God's uh, of God's mercy in time of judgment, of God's protection in time of judgment, but also his sustaining of the earth. And that's going to be important because of the judgments that we have just uh, encountered in the text, that so extensive uh, are they, that we might be tempted to think that this really is uh, the time of the end, that uh, just like those on the earth at that time will call out who can stand these judgments of God. Uh, but this rainbow will, will remind us that God does keep a remnant uh, through judgment, just like he kept Noah through judgment on the earth. It also uh, is identified with God's presence and his glory. Uh, this would be the cloud that is around the angel, uh, is God's glory, but also has to do often with his wrath. So Exodus 24, we read, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. So we see God's presence here in this cloud. When we're in the uh, book of uh, Ezekiel, we see in chapters 10 and again in chapter 43, that 39, uh, that this cloud leaves the temple, and then at one point in the future will return to the temple. Uh, in that case, it is related with the Shekinah glory, uh, which is God's presence in Israel. So this presence of God uh, usually is, is used in a context which is very Jewish uh, in order to uh, bring to their minds God's promise to live among them. The pair of cloud and fire, uh, or the clouds and the pillars of fire uh, would remind us also of the Exodus and God's uh, mercy in bringing the Exodus generation out of Egypt and also his protection uh, through that time of, of difficulty and wandering that'll be very similar to this, this end time, but um, exacerbated to the nth degree. So in Exodus 13, 21, we read, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. They might travel by day and by night. And we also see Christ's glory revealed in Matthew 17 during the trans, uh, I can't remember the theological term for that right now. Anyways, during Jesus Christ's uh, translation into his glorified body that we see foreseen in Matthew 17 of the transfiguration. Uh, we see his face shines like the sun. Also remember when, when, no, or when Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai, his face is glowing so brightly that he has to cover it uh, so that the Jews can actually look at him. So we read in Matthew 17, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So we see mostly that this angel is in the presence of God, or has been recently in the presence of God, and, and comes with the bidding of Christ, uh, that he is on a mission from God and has been given power by God. 
So we identify this cloud, although it's, it is here in the vision to John, a very literal cloud and a very literal angel. It does have uh, metaphorical significance. So this cloud could uh, depict his celestial origin being connected with God's judgment. The rainbow would be God's faithfulness, his mercy, his protection, and his glory. The sun, his radiance, his glory, and his majesty, and the fiery legs, his holiness, mercy, and judgment. So this all prepares us for what we're about to, to hear from this angel uh, and from what a what are called these seven peals of thunder that, that John is about to hear. So in verses two and three of our current chapter, we read, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered the voices. So first, before we move on, notice that this angel's voice, when he cries out, it's like the roar of a lion. So we should think of, uh, of again, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who comes again as the conquering uh, warrior. But it also is reminiscent of the power that God has uh, given to this angel, and it's a power over the whole earth. Uh, and we're going to see prophecies that will affect the entire earth, as well as Israel. In identifying this little book, uh, we will do a lot more on that uh, as we move on in the chapter, but we want to be very, uh, very clear what this book is not. Uh, this book is not the seven-sealed scroll, which arrived in, uh, in chapter five. The problem's being primarily the tense of the verb used for it being opened already. In the context of Revelation, this seven-sealed scroll is still being unraveled in the sense that its seventh clause and its seventh seal is the seven bold judgments. So we haven't yet completed this scroll, and it would be unnatural to use a perfect tense verb here for this scroll. Uh, because whatever action is attached to this scroll has already been completed. As well, uh, this book will be consumed uh, towards the end of this chapter, and its judgments have not yet been completed, uh, so that would be very strange to have the book disappear before it's, it's completely revealed. Uh, the, another problem with identifying this as the title deed to earth um, this is probably the biggest problem is a different Greek word is used. Now, the Greek words are related, um, but they are definitely not the same. In, the, uh, in chapter 5, when we see the, the title deed to the earth, they use the word biblion, which is a diminutive term, meaning it's, it's already called a small book. Uh, and it... it uh, it identifies paper or document to notice a scroll or a record. So this fits very well with, with our interpretation of it being the title deed to earth. But in chapter 10, we get this word biblion, which is also a diminutive with the eon ending, but this R-I-D in the middle of it uh, is distinguishable enough from biblion that there has to be some purpose that John has used a different word 
likely he's used a different word here simply to distinguish it from the book that we've already seen. Uh, so this is the only time in the Greek New Testament that this word occurs. So based simply on its use outside of scripture, they've identified it as a little scroll or a little book, uh, being the diminutive of a diminutive. Um, so it, it must be a very tiny book. Uh, so it only appears here in chapter 10, Revelation. So I take another view on this, and most actually do take this view, that this simply uh, is a new revelation from God that is yet to be revealed that he's giving to John. Uh, so this, this uh, fits in the context because uh, this book, which John not be permitted to reveal its contents of, it's not the only time that this has happened in scripture. Daniel had a similar event take place uh, back 600 years before Christ. So this isn't uncommon, and we would want to identify this book in a similar way as we identify that book in uh, the book of Daniel. Let's see. Uh, so this, this book is probably revealing new revelation from God. Uh, Jeremiah as well had a similar encounter uh, where he writes here in his 15th chapter, you who know, O Lord, remember me, take notice of me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake, I endure reproach. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Uh, all right, so this angel is also standing on land and on the sea. This is a few different interpretations as well. Some try to identify the sea as the nations and the land as Israel. Uh, this doesn't have too many problems, except I couldn't find a single instance where these two ideas are pitted against each other explicitly in scripture. I can see where the sea is identified with the nations, not where the land against the sea is a distinguisher between Israel and the nations. Uh, but these are the verses that are used. And uh, again, I, I can't deny this interpretation, but I also can't find enough evidence to support it. So in Revelation 17, 15, we read, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot or where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And again, that's the term generally used for nations that are not Israel. And we see in Daniel 7 uh, that these correlate with Gentile rulers um, in the time of the Gentiles, which is going to be our primary discussion of in the last part of this study tonight, these Gentile rulers all come out of the sea. So in Daniel 7, 2 to 3, we read, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And in the context of Daniel, these are all specifically Gentile rulers and Gentile nations being described. What I think this is depicting is simply God's sovereignty over land and sea uh, being a merism. A merism is where you identify the two extremes in order to say that everything in between is also included. 
So this from Genesis uh, chapter one, we read, God called the dry land earth and gathering and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. This is only the second um, division that he makes where he's made the heavens and the earth. He's made the lights and the darkness. And then the first thing he does here in this earth is to divide the land from the sea. So his purpose here is explicitly earth-centric, uh, and it's using a merism to say that from one end to the other, he has uh, power. We read in Psalm 69, God's dominion over both land and sea, and it's used in a similar way here um, to note the two extremes. Let heaven and earth praise him, let seas and everything that moves in them, or the sea, everything that moves in them. Um, so heaven, earth, and the seas are used here. So this mighty angel, uh, or this strong angel, is simply one among other angels. Uh, perhaps he is the same angel from five, uh, chapter 5 who announces Christ. Perhaps he's the same angel from chapter 8 uh, who is offering up the incense of the saints uh, mixed with the aroma of Christ. Or perhaps he is the same angel that will bind Satan in the end. Uh, simply, we, we can't be dogmatic on who this angel is because he is not identified by name for us. Uh, he is given authority over the earth, uh, and this authority is specifically in conjunction with God's judgment, mercy, and glory. Finally, this angel cries out like a roaring lion, uh, which will, uh, in conjunction with the seven thunders, probably indicates that it's uh, judgment that is about to be uh, revealed to John. Also fitting in the context of Revelation, judgment would be our best guess. These thunders are uh, usually indicative of divine judgment. Mm -hmm.